Choke points. Let's go. It is a race to the finish line for the Montlake Project on 520. But the final link to I-5 could be in jeopardy. Here's Chris. Yeah, and I'll get to the negative stuff in a moment. But we're down to just the final few months of construction in and around the Montlake Lid. That project should be finished in the second quarter of next year. The reversible lane from 520 to the express lanes on I-5 should be done by June. So it's just the finishing touches that stands between now and putting a bow on this phase of the 520 master plan. Things are are really coming into fruition now. All that we've been working for the last four years. We've got the um, new direct access ramps that are, are getting built right now. They will be probably built by the end of November. The Washington's Department of Transportation, Steve Pierce, says the new bike and pedestrian bridge is close to finished as well. We have um, the bike and pedestrian bridge over 520. That should be complete. We're hoping the first quarter of next year. So all the pieces of the puzzle are moving into position, but not everything is rosy for the 520 project. The final piece of the expansion from Montlake to I-5 over Portage Bay sits in a precarious position. Only two companies bid on the Portage Bay project, and the best one is 70% over what WashDOT expected the project to cost. Yikes. Washdot expected it to cost $800 million, the best bid, over $1.3 billion. So, what happens now? We've worked with the governor's office and state transportation committee leaders to discuss options moving forward. Yeah, it's a very tough question. In fact, project head Omar Jefferson recently sent a note to the legislators in districts 45, 46, and 48 around this project area to outline the seriousness of the situation. It spells out the pros and cons of canceling the bid and starting over, dividing up the project, maybe phasing it. But all of those are bad options because they add time and money to the job. As Jefferson wrote, up to seven years in delays and up to $1.5 billion in additional money to the price tag. Plus, there is a safety risk for delaying as well, considering the seismic vulnerability of the Portage Bay Bridge. I had Pierre read part of the final paragraph of that email to the legislators from Jefferson. We're working with um, Washdot leadership, the governor's office, and the legislator to understand possible ways to close that funding um, gap. And that could include uh, through tolling, sales tax deferral, and other financing and grant opportunities. And Washdot is doing something unique here. It is keeping the best bid, which came in from Skanska, open through the end of the legislative session. The bid was supposed to close on Monday, coming up here next week. So normally you have a bidding process from here to there, uh, and then it ends. Well, what they're doing is they're trying to, they're keeping it open. Skanska seems to be okay with that, while they try to figure out if they can find the money. And then at that point, what do we do? Because certainly Washdot doesn't want to go all the way six miles from 405 to Montlake and then leave the final 4,000 feet of yeah. this project undone. But that could happen because of this massive difference and, in what they thought it was going to cost to build and what the best bid came in as. And so what what factors added so much to the cost? They're basically inflation. 
what they're talking, you know, cost of building materials, cost of it's, it's things like additional that. environmental rules or anything like not, that. Not that. Uh, and again, there could be some of that in there, obviously, because they have to drill piles into Portage Bay. Right. So there's yeah. some issues there. They had already dis- done some test pile work there drilling uh, earlier this year and last year. So but there could be some of that. But a lot, I get the feeling a lot of it is what we feel around the country, which mm-hmm. is extra labor costs, extra uh, materials costs. So are they having like to, that. They, they're going to have to demolish the present structure or are they going to keep that? Well, they don't know. They're in the process of they were supposed to be building and making parallel kind of like they did yeah. going into Montlake. So, yeah, it's a very interesting conundrum. I mean, I mean, look what happened with the ferry system when their last uh, attempt to get the six hybrid electrics came in so far over budget. They scrapped it and we still haven't gotten a contract to start that over again. And that's been, what, two years now? So, I mean, you see there, there's pros and cons to this, but yeah, 70% over budget. Uh, and they're like, okay, I guess we have to do it, but where are we going to find the money? So, yeah, it's... Oh, uh, I think I know where they'll be looking for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, probably. What's the max price in the toll lanes now? Uh, yeah, well, 520 is variable. Uh, we'll see how variable they go yeah. to try to end up paying for that. So, yeah, it's a variance, but yeah, that's a it was a sobering number when it came out, and, but now the question is, okay, what do we do? They're already working with the legislature to try to figure out as we go into this session. It's going to be a pretty big deal to figure out where they can find that money. 637 Seattle's Morning News. After enduring multiple false alarms warning of a breach at the Tolt River Dam, Carnation residents say they are facing a new problem with the dam's newly installed alert system, and they blame the city of Seattle for it. The report from Cairo News Radio's Kate Stone. The Tolt River Dam is 16 miles upstream from Carnation. It's owned and operated by the city of Seattle to supply much of that city's electricity. And according to those living nearby, the dam's alert system has a big problem. This is a test of the Tolt Dam warning system. That message plays every week on Wednesdays at noon, but Carnation City Manager Ana Cortez says there have been six false alarms of a dam breach over the last three years. If you're outside of Carnation... I think it's very difficult for people to understand the level of trauma inflicted on this community. If it ever breaks, the dam would send a wall of water to Carnation and force citywide evacuations. Cortez says each false alarm has caused more fear and mistrust among the community of more than 2,200 residents. We have individuals who have physical reactions Wednesdays at noon when the alert system goes off. And even worse reactions when the system doesn't go off. Last month, Seattle installed a new system that officials said was far superior, more modern and more technologically advanced. But Cortez told me we have folks in different parts of the city who can't hear it. In response to complaints that the new siren is harder to hear and understand than it was previously, the city of Seattle said in a web post, it's important to note that the siren system is primarily an outdoor warning system, something that Cortez and other Carnation City officials find concerning. system is supposed to alert people who are out and about. If you are in your home, we are counting on you to be near your phone. Where that logic breaks down, unfortunately for us, is that we do not trust any of the partners in this equation. King County has failed to provide leadership 
The emergency response team has failed to provide leadership. Cortez and other city officials now want to provide a debrief for the incoming Seattle City Council members, as well as other city staff, about the alert system. In response, Seattle Public Utilities said it is listening and acting on Carnation residents' feedback. That includes upgrading all speakers, speaker amplifiers, and re-recording voice messages. The department expects to finish that by January, with additional upgrades to the system happening throughout next year, something Cortez says is long overdue. The problem didn't just start in 2020. Seattle has had this dam since 1961. So thanks for the progress. It's a little late. Kate Stone, Cairo News Radio. Thanks for the progress. Let's talk about air safety now. There was a new report released this week on air traffic security, and I called up CBS correspondent Jim Crisula who looked over this report and explained what's in it. It's a 52-page report that comes from an independent safety review team that was named by the FAA. Again, we've seen this incident of of close-call incidents. It seems they seem to be rising in number, and yes, they have been. In fact, as an aside, the National Transportation Safety Board has opened seven investigations into near-miss incidents just since January. Now, before I go any further, Dave, let me point out that while there are concerns, yes, about aviation safety in this country. There has not been a fatal accident involving a major commercial airline in the U.S. since 2009. So specifically with this report, they concluded that there's what they call an urgent need for action to address these issues. Now, part of what this report concluded, basically three main problems at this point in terms of aviation security in this country. First off, understaffing really serious understaffing of air traffic controllers, outdated technology in terms of computer systems and radar and tracking planes, all of that, and then chronic underfunding day from Congress. And there was a lot of focus in this 52-page report about Congress has to increase budgets for ATC, for the FAA, NTSB, all of these organizations that are responsible for air traffic control and safety. We've been hearing about this for years. The New York Times led its own investigation into these close calls on runways and found that they happen nearly once a week on average and that 99% of air traffic control facilities are considered understaffed. So I asked Jim, uh, what's the holdup on fixing this? I think a lot of it, Dave, is, is again politics. There was a congressional hearing last week, a Senate committee hearing, late last week that I actually watched, and it was about this issue. It was about aviation safety. And there were several witnesses who spoke, including the chairwoman, the head of the NTSB, the head of ATC, acting head of FAA. And one of the key takeaways from that Senate hearing late last week was the fact, and it struck me as well, that the head of the ATC was talking about that a lot of these air traffic controllers, Dave, are working six days a week, 50, 60 hours a week. And as they say, that's a very stressful profession and job to begin with. And then when you factor in these incredibly long hours that these air traffic controls controllers are working, as somebody said at this hearing, it's just a recipe for disaster and, and the disaster waiting to happen. So is there no pending legislation in Congress to do something about this? Well, again, one of the, the chairs of the Senate committee, Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, talked about that. She said, we have to do something. Now, again, Dave, there hasn't been much discussion, it seems, at least publicly in Congress to address these issues. You have to ask yourself why. Uh, Again, if if there's such glaring concerns of of a disaster of an accident just waiting to happen. 
So again, will all of this provide new focus for Congress and say, hey, we've got to do something about this. We've got to address this. We've got to put more money into these safety systems. We'll have to wait and see. Obviously, only time will tell. CBS correspondent Jim Crisula. Jim, thank you. Dave, always good to talk to you. Stay well. Time for your daily talk. I really want to comment, but I'm not going to. Brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Kenny Maynor was an Army veteran who lives in Fairbanks, Alaska with his wife, two young boys, a baby on the way. And with a growing family, Kenny had been challenged in getting around town. He had a working car for over a year. Insurance, along with Enterprise Rent-A-Car, it picks a veteran from every state to receive a car. And Kenny Maynor was not just happy to be chosen by Enterprise and Progressive, he was overjoyed and beaming with gratitude at this new car. Thank you so much! From the moment he arrived for the small ceremony in Anchorage to receive the car until he and his wife drove off back to Fairbanks, Kenny never stopped smiling. There you go. Oh, my God. I've never. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> he was shaking hands with all the people in attendance, saying. Thank you. One and all, I am honored. I am blessed. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This is a great gift for me and my sons and my family. And he told NBC affiliate KTUU the gift is really life-changing. I can not have to worry about catching a bus to work. I can go to work, maybe get a better job. It opens up some doors. This, yes, yes, it opened up some doors and some possibilities. Definitely true. Oh, what a thing to get gifted a car. Yeah. I was thinking about that on The prices Right the other day, the people who, get, you know, and do they often especially choose? Especially if you haven't got one. Uh, yeah, especially yeah. if you don't have one. But yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that myself. Well, there's a program that's working, right? Yeah. And now, from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9, here is G. Scott. Are we again talking about the wealth gap between millennials and baby boomers? Is, we, we, I tell you what, we don't have to talk about it as long as anyone that is a baby boomer will agree and admit mm-hmm. that things aren't as good for the millennials as it was for them. Okay. And we can be done. Fine, but you're getting all our stuff in a few years, so you know, just wait. <laughs> but 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 while you wait for it, your mental health is struggling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you your credit score is being shot. Yeah, yeah. Your hopes and dreams yeah. of owning a home down. You're and, not having kids because you can't afford them. And your and your kids are struggling too. Mom, Dad, can I go to college? What kind of dumb question is that? <laughs> all right, let's get to it. So here's now what, that we got the bashing out of the way. Okay. <laughs> You took so, it like a champ, Dave. So the university study looked at three key metrics. They looked at housing and home ownership. They looked at marriage versus living at home with your mom and daddy. Mm-hmm. And they also looked at money, right? These things. And so some of the research talked about when it comes to the wealth gap, they said by the time that baby boomers turn 35, of them own their homes compared to 49% of millennials. That's higher than I thought, 49%. I thought so too. I I think if you sliced it into metro areas, like if you were to look at the Seattle metro area, it'd be a lot lower, but yeah, national average. When it comes, used to be cheap here. When I moved here, it was still in the dumper. Yeah, there's memes out there that jokes that your grandparents bought their first home for a pint of raspberries and $25 (laughs) in cash, you know? yeah. Yeah, when it comes to marriage and families, 
27% of baby boomers check those boxes compared to 13% of millennials. So that is going on. You you know, look, this is going to be a discussion and conversation all the time. Uh, Be careful to have them uh, at Thanksgiving uh, this coming up. (laughs) If you want to be kept in the will. You know what I'm saying? Just be careful. The wealth distribution, did you note that statistic in this Cambridge study? The Federal Reserve's Q2 2023 numbers, so these are very recent numbers, that baby boomers own 53% of all wealth in the U.S. Millennials own just 6%. 6%. Well, you're 30 years younger. Okay, Give we're full-grown adults. <laughs> but how are we supposed to catch up with I mean, my first apartment in Atlanta before I was married was in an area where which was regularly pockmarked by gunfire under yeah. Ted Turner's TV tower. Listen, we've all I mean, lived you know. in, in apartments that aren't great. I lived yeah. in an old Motel 6 in Bellevue just there so I could go. go to University of Washington. So we've all struggled. The problem is we're having a harder time catching up to where boomers were when they were all right. Look here. I lo- look here. I love y'all baby boomers. Y'all, my mom, my mom's a boomer, you know what I mean? So, obviously, I love her. And I don't really envy none of you baby boomers, except for there's one thing. There's one thing that you got. What's the one thing? The one thing. Pensions? (laughs) Is that what you were going to say? That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, hold up. So, let me get this straight. You work for this company for a certain amount of time, right? And then when you're done, this is going to pay you for the rest of your life. In addition to Social Security, in addition to retirement savings, four hundred one k. So guilty, absolutely guilty. The fact, the fact that you pointed up all the things, the pension, Mm -hmm. like. Can we redo that? Can we re-talk about that for, I mean, the pension thing. I remember when I was growing up and my mom, my mom and dad divorced and I would always hear her say, I ain't going to get with no man if he ain't got no pension coming in when he done. <laughs> hey, it just ain't going to happen. Uh, he going to have to do bad. I can do bad by myself. I got, I got all this. I got this. I got yeah. this. And I'm going to have my pension and everything. Yeah. And so I used to always hear that. So I assumed that, oh, everybody will get a pension when you get ready to go to work. Maybe what we should do is ask boomers. Is that like derogatory? I feel like it's derogatory now, but I guess... I don't know when you're like boomers, right? It's been t- I just I don't know. Depends I don't want to be derogatory. Voice. Okay, oh. when boomers, maybe we should ask how they got companies to agree to pensions. Because if you ask the company today to offer pensions, <laughs> you would be no, laughed out of the boardroom. I think I think when it's all said and done, I am. Would you think that most baby boomers mm-hmm. agree and and or understand how tough it is for millennials today? Well, I think so because we're your parents. We hear from you. We hear the complaints. Well, what? Do you hear us? Or do you, do you, do you listen? Are you seriously? You sure? Well, because sometimes I feel like I, I'm arguing even with my mama about this stuff. Well, She's like, I don't understand you, child. You just go. All you got to do because when I used to go to school, I used to go work part time. You can't, mom. You yeah. can't do right. that today. You can't just go to school and work part time to pay your tuition. That's right. Things are different, and I think we we grew up in an era where the U.S. was basically on top of the world. And, yeah, companies had pensions because they needed people to work. They wanted loyalty, and uh, they got it. And now it's the free market. Mm. Lo- it's the gig economy, uh. which I thought you guys enjoyed. 
Oh, it's great not. working five <laughs> gigs and a full-time job with two kids and oh, a right, mortgage. Say, in and a few years, you're getting it all. So oh, I don't like thinking go. about I don't that. like thinking like that. No, right? See you guys. Take the care. Attic, the attic is yours. That's fun. And look, we all still like each other. Isn't that nice? That's right. Yeah. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And for this interview, we're joined by SMM producer Paul Holden because uh, he's a, a music expert. We're going to talk about music. It's something called Smash, a nonprofit organization which provides free and low-cost access to musicians who need primary care, mental health treatment, the, the stuff that, you know, you usually get if you work for a corporation and have a, a good policy. But a lot of musicians uh, do not. We're talking with Nikki Barron, who's the Outreach and Communications Manager for Smash, about this benefit coming up. Nikki, welcome, and tell me what's going on here. Yes, so like you said, Smash provides free health care for musicians, and our biggest fundraiser of the year, this is going to be the sixth year that we do it, um, and it's a big concert at the Moore Theater on November 19th, and what we do is we take legacy artists, so think Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, um, Minus the Bear, folks from Death Cab for Cutie, Postal Service, and we pair them with emerging artists. So Brittany Davis, uh, Eva Walker from the Black Tones, um, Shayna Shepard, Small Paul, uh, and then they pay tribute to somebody. So this year we pay tribute to Sub Pop, um, which if you're not familiar, is pretty much what put Seattle on the music map um, mm-hmm. with their release of Grunge. What does Smash stand for and, and how did it get started? Yeah, so it stands for, it's so long, uh, Seattle Musicians Access to Sustainable Healthcare. Uh-huh. And it was Very founded good. by Ian Moore, a musician who's originally from Austin. And it's modeled after two organizations there. One is called HAM and one is called SIMS. And they provide healthcare and mental health care for musicians. And when he came up here and saw there was nothing like that, uh, he founded it in 2015 originally. And we got started the next year and we've been added ever since. Now, for those of us who have never been an independent musician, explain, you know, with the state healthcare system, they could get a plan through there, but many don't. So smash is necessary. Kind of describe the the discrepancy with that. Yeah. So first, we all know healthcare is very complicated. Um, Just using it, signing up for it. So even if you do qualify for Apple Health, just getting set up can be a struggle. The other thing is that for a lot of musicians, their pay is not something that they can easily report on to sign up for things like that. Um, and then if you, you know, in Seattle, it's the most expensive city to live in. Housing is insane. So even if you do make a what should be considered a good living, like $50,000 a year, um, you're still not able to afford health insurance on your own and you no longer qualify for Apple Health. And so for us, if you're a musician and you live, we like to say basically from Bellingham to Olympia and all the islands, and you make under $55,000 a year, you qualify for Smash, it's free. Um, And we give, like you had said before, everything from mental health support, substance use disorder treatment, primary care, dental, vision, hearing, um, really the works. And on top of it, we help you actually sign up for Apple Health if you um, qualify. And if you don't have insurance or if you do have insurance, we help you navigate the healthcare system using our network of providers um, or community clinics, things like that. 
And it's not only a, a resource for musicians to have access to healthcare, but this is a great resource for musicians to get connected with some of the biggest names in music. Uh, ben Gibbard just finished one of the biggest tours, I think, mm-hmm. of the summer with the Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service reunion tour. How important is is are these mashups for our local artists? What's that experience like for them? And, and in your experience, what is uh, what have you seen uh, the benefits for these artists partnering up uh, after Smash? Maybe. Uh, future uh, endeavors for them to, to pursue in their careers. Yeah, a perfect example of this is uh, Shayna Shepard. So she recent, well, I can't remember which year it was. I want to say year before last, maybe 2021. Could Who have been knows? 2022. Time is a concept after the pandemic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, she got paired up with Soundgarden uh, one year and went on to to do more songs with them, went on to do a song that was featured in a Nordstrom's campaign. So it was huge for her. Um, but I think it's it's also just getting to meet your local heroes and getting to see the people who paved the way for you. Um, and then for the bigger artists to stay connected and to give back to their community. Can you, why the celebration of of sub pop and 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 can you give more examples of of how sub pop has influenced not only music in the region but has grown to uh, nationwide and and potentially worldwide? I'm not from Seattle originally, but I heard about sub pop growing up uh, in in the Midwest. Can you tell us uh, why why the celebration of of, of sub pop this year and a little bit more about uh, sub pop's influence? Yeah, so Sub Pop just turned 35 this year. So we wanted to pay tribute to the 35 years that they've been around. And really as like we had that big bloom of music industry pop up around grunge and around them, slowly everybody went away, all the other labels that came here, all the A&R reps that were, you know, signing every grunge band they could get their hands on. As soon as that bubble burst, they all left and Sub Pop stayed and they're still here. They still run everything right out of their downtown office um, and they still sign lots of local Seattle artists. So if you look at um, their current lineup, there's quite a few that are from right here in the region. And another thing they've done that's been super unique is that they um, have their singles club, which is so popular. So if you're somebody who just wants to discover new music. They put out records um, through that club that are not even sub-pop artists, just artists that they love and they want to support. And they truly do invest in the small artists. It's not just going after the big names. Of course, they have some big names like Postal Service, but they've also got people like Shayna Shepard who put her first single out with them. What is the, the, the status of Seattle's music industry? Has it recovered completely from the pandemic? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> no. Um, there's... For musicians, the biggest way that they can actually make money is by playing live. And there's still quite the apprehension for people to go into crowded rooms and uh, dingy basement music venues and things like that. So I think the live music industry is on its way back, but there's still that hesitation, especially as we go into the fall and winter when they're talking about um, COVID coming back. So I think the local artists who really do rely on that live music industry um, are definitely struggling for sure. And then I think the bigger artists, they're having to be out on the road doing these huge tours, like you mentioned with Postal Service and Death Cab, where they're playing arena tours um, and they're being on the road, you know, 200 days a year because they have to recoup all the years that they weren't able to do that. So yeah, I would definitely say it's not back yet. So if you can go out to a live show or buy some merch from an artist or pay for music, not just stream it on Spotify, definitely do that. Every little bit helps. 
Nikki Barron is the Outreach and Communications Manager for the Smash Benefit. Coming up, thank you, Nikki. Good luck. Thanks. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.